Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello, Critic listeners, and welcome to this week's podcast. As we are in the midst of what feels like a never-ending lockdown, Graham Stewart speaks to Capel Comoredi and Toby Young about the origins of this crisis, whether we should be in a lockdown at all, and whether saving vulnerable lives is an economic price worth paying. Capel Comoredi is a successful author of Malevolent Republic, a short history of the new India, which has earned rave reviews from around the world. And Toby Young is commentator, journalist, author and founder of Free Speech Union, having recently set up the website LockdownSkeptics.org, a place for those who question official approaches and information about the coronavirus crisis. Uh, Toby and Kappel, welcome both to The Critic Podcast. I, I want to uh, start, we, we will come shortly to the British situation, but I, I want to start, Kappel, with you, and I, I want to start where the coronavirus started in in China. Um, is it your view that uh, the response initially of the Chinese government is the reason the world is now in the predicament it finds itself? Uh, part of the reason, a big part of the reason, is the initial cover-up of the outbreak. And in the piece I wrote for The Critic, I detailed it, and I will go over it now. Uh, the first case came in early December, and they were whistleblowers in Wuhan. There were doctors. The first whistleblower was a female doctor uh, who was silenced by uh, the officials in Wuhan. And the second one, whose case we know about in greater detail, uh, was a young doctor, an ophthalmologist, called uh, Li Wenliang. He uh, told his friends on WeChat, uh, eight of them, that... Uh, I've seen at my hospital, this is the Wuhan Central Hospital, uh, a number of patients have been quarantined and they're exhibiting symptoms akin to the SARS uh, epidemic of uh, 2003. And when SARS flared up in 2003, the Chinese government uh, suppressed information and it uh, arrested the man who was the whistleblower, indoctrinated him for 45 days, a 72-year-old doctor, and he said, "This time we need to be more careful." And what uh, the government, what the authorities did, is they invited him, and they reprimanded him, and they made him to sign a retraction and a confession, uh, saying that he was ashamed of himself uh, for spreading lies. And as they were doing this, the cases continued to mount up. Uh, and by the second of January, uh, the scientists in Wuhan had already mapped the genome of the virus. But this information wasn't shared with the world until the 9th of January. And it is only, and the, the, the local officials of the Communist Party proceeded with uh, an annual uh, lunar function. 40,000 families uh, were hosted at a lavish banquet, a potluck banquet. And this is the busiest period in China. This is their most important festival. And there was a lot of movement back and forth. And the first time uh, President Xi actually uh, got involved in any serious manner was the 20th of January. And within 10 days, uh, the death toll had climbed to 200 um, within China alone. But China continued to deny that this disease was transmitted to, from human to human. Now, there's a very sophisticated study done by the Southampton University that says had China acted early, uh, there would have been 95% fewer casualties. Uh, that is extraordinary to think. And the reason China only came clean is because there were cases abroad. If this had been contained at home, uh, China would never have come clean. Because uh, we know for a fact that the Chinese authorities ordered the local labs to destroy samples and not to do any further testing. And the conduct of the World Health Organization is very interesting, in, interesting to note because... As late as the 14th of January, the World Health Organization was telling the world that this disease doesn't uh, transmit from humans to humans, even though on the 31st of December, Taiwan, which has denied membership of the WHO, uh, informed uh, the World Health Organization that there's, there was concrete evidence that this disease moved from human to human. So this was part of a pattern of behavior by the Communist Party of China. And the outbreak, the flare-up, the rapidity with which it spread, the inability 
of the world governments to actually do anything about it or do anything uh, while it was too late to do anything is, I think, the direct result of the early failure of the Chinese government to be transparent and actually to move and suppress information. It is, it is inseparable from the nature of the Chinese government. And do we have a feeling that the errors made by the World Health Organization and by other governments in taking China at its word but not taking Taiwan at its word, these were essentially political uh, misjudgments or they were uh, simple uh, errors made in good faith? Well, the World Health Organization was given teeth uh, in the previous decade, it it has it is the only organization in the world with the authority to declare a global health emergency, uh, and this this power was given to it precisely to avoid what had happened in two thousand and three when uh, you know the information about SARS didn't really come out, and there were seven hundred and seventy four fatalities, and the disease had spread to twenty nine countries. It is to avert that kind of a situation that the World Health Organization was given these powers, but it didn't utilize them. Uh, in February, at the end of February, when this 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 disease has sp- spread to dozens of countries, uh, eight thousand people were uh, were infected by it. Uh, Tedros uh, Ghebreyesus, Doctor Tedros, who's not a physician, uh, who's the head of uh, World Health Organization, was praising China and saying the world owes a great debt to China because it bought the world time. This was patently false. What China was doing, and his officials knew that China's early suppression of details had actually made this much worse. So the the role played by the World Health Organization is uh, very. It's 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 something that is shocking because every step taken to avert a calamity of the kind we're witnessing today, uh, all the powers given to it, were, none of them were used. In fact. The World Health Organization, under the leadership of Tedros, went to great lengths to give shield to China, to cover up China's missteps in the early months. And this is something that needs a very close look. Can I ask a question, Kapil? Um, uh, it's very interesting, um, uh, your account of um, the Chinese authorities' efforts to suppress the initial uh, whistleblower. Um, at, at, or the doctor who raised the alarm, and there's there's certainly a parable about the importance of free speech there. Because had the Chinese authorities not tried to um, uh, uh, silence that doctor, then it's perfectly possible that uh, the virus could have been contained, and many hundreds of thousands of deaths, possibly millions of deaths, could have been prevented. Um, but do you think one of the reasons the Chinese authorities um, reacted in the way they did, at least initially, uh, is because uh, they're worried that the reason for the outbreak was not um, back to human transmission at the human seafood market, but a uh, an accident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I don't know if you've looked into that particular theory, um, but I've 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 looked at a couple of articles and um, uh, uh, fairly respectable YouTubers who've um, explored that theory. And it, initially, I thought it was um, clearly a paranoid conspiracy theory. But actually, the more I've looked into it, the more credible that theory appears to be. The answer to that question is there's there's a very uh, one of India's most uh, foremost. Uh, strategist Brahma Chalani, often talked of as the next national security advisor, has written extensively about this. And uh, he tweeted uh, last month a, a, a screenshot of uh, the Global Times, which is the Chinese newspaper, uh, which touted the fact that Wuhan has the largest uh, is the largest laboratory, uh, largest collection of viruses. And the Global Times deleted that tweet. Um, and a group of independent Chinese journalists put up a, a, a similar article saying that this could be an outbreak uh, occurring, beginning, originating in uh, in a lab. Uh, but that article was also deleted. So I do not have. There is no conclusive proof that this was an outbreak at uh, at the uh, lab. 
and the rush to suppress information is understandable. It doesn't necessarily need to have uh, broken out at a lab for the government to suppress it, because when you become the epicenter of an outbreak, you suffer in other ways. You're unable to export your food, people don't want to travel to your country, your tourism suffers. Uh, various countries have ex experienced the fallout from being epicenters of virus outbreaks. So that could be the reason why China decided to suppress it. But primarily, it is the nature of the Chinese government. You mentioned free speech, and that, I think, is the most important thing here. It, you know, the best way to contain pandemics is to have free flow of information. You know, if this... Uh, the director of Chatham House, uh, or the chairperson of chairman of Chatham House, uh, went on television in America and said, we should be grateful that this didn't happen in India. Actually, had this happened in India, I think we would have been able to contain this faster because Indian newspapers would have published it, the world would have been able to act on it, and the, the reason it happened the way it did is because there is no free flow of information in China. And to this date, the people in Wuhan do not know the full number of casualties. Uh, the morgues there have filled up. I've read one article um, in Radio Free Asia, which spoke to the locals in Wuhan. Um, they say there were about 42,000 deaths. And it is very important for newspapers in, in places where there is free speech and there is democracy and there is freedom not to keep repeating that uh, America has a bigger number of... De the death toll in America is bigger than... China's because we do not know the full figure in China. We do not know what is happening in China. The people of Wuhan, they're very angry, but, you know, nobody is wanting to talk to them. Nobody is looking at uh, their tragedy. Um, there, there are thousands and thousands of deaths there because there have been thousands of thousands of funerals in a very short space of time. And it is, you've said something very important, free speech. And it is the absence of free speech uh, that led China, the reflexive reaction of the Chinese authorities is to contain, just to suppress, stamp on anything uh, that appears to go against the party line. And they had a very important political congress happening in the month of January, and they couldn't brook anything that was going to wrinkle that. Uh, Toby, uh, do you feel that there were steps that could have been taken in the UK earlier, which uh, would have prevented now the extreme lockdown that, that, that this country uh, is enduring? Certainly the initial reaction of the British authorities um, uh, was to play down um, uh, just how infectious and how dangerous COVID-19 is. Um, and uh, it's possible, I think, that had the UK authorities introduced some more moderate uh, social distancing measures um, and more effective social distancing measures at an earlier stage, then they wouldn't have needed to ramp up those measures uh, so quickly. Um, so, for instance, um, the wearing of masks... Um, the WHO and the Surgeon General, General of the United States, amongst others, are complicit in um, playing down the effectiveness of masks at the beginning of the outbreak, in part because they were concerned that uh, there wouldn't be enough uh, PPE for uh, medical staff if the public began to buy up masks in bulk. Um, but uh, uh, it's now clear that masks are actually, um, the correct masks worn correctly, are a more effective way of preventing the spread of the virus even than hand washing. Um, so it could be that the UK authorities could have um, recommended uh, the wearing of masks and ramped up the production of masks, imported effective masks, in a way which could have led to a more measured containment than the measures they did introduce about three weeks ago. And uh, it's a question to both of you. The sort of approaches that uh, South Korea and Singapore ha have taken Singapore now incidentally has gone on to a, a pretty major lockdown but it, initially it was a, a track and tracing 
policy uh, using uh, mobile phone data uh, and also uh, you know a, a large spread of clinics across what's admittedly a very small country uh, those kind of techniques i mean could they have been rolled out in in larger countries or do they only really work in in, in geographically tight spaces well i i can i just uh, come back i will leave uh, it to Toby to answer that question, but can I just respond to your question about your point about masks? Uh, it's very important to note that the World Health Organization to this day says that masks are not uh, do not play a role in stopping the spread of this virus, and they're essential only for frontline healthcare workers. Uh, so it's the the advice that is being given by the World Health Organization continues to imperil the lives of people, because as Toby has just mentioned, there are studies that say that masks are even more effective in stopping the spread of COVID than hand washing. And yet, the official advice of the World Health Organization is that masks are only necessary for frontline workers. Um, as a professor at Georgetown University said, that we've been conned, we've been misled uh, by the World Health Organization right from the beginning. And this um, is another aspect of that story of being misled and as to the containment and uh, of and the based on the sizes of countries i'll leave that to toby to answer yeah it's an interesting question um but uh, there doesn't appear to be a correlation between uh, the um uh, severity of the social distancing measures that countries have imposed and um the number of excess deaths, that is to say, uh, the number of deaths that have occurred in excess to um, the monthly average for this time of year across the world. So I'm looking at the European monitoring of excess mortality for public health action, which is a website which monitors excess deaths, that is to say, it monitors the death rate at the moment in different countries across the world on a week-to-week -week basis with the average death rate in those countries uh, for this week in a normal year. And um, it shows that uh, the uh, excess death rate in the UK, excess deaths in the UK, is presently very high. This is for uh, week 14 of 2020. Um, it's very high in Italy and and in Spain and in France. But it's uh, normal in Sweden, it's normal in Japan, it's normal in Singapore, it's normal in Denmark. Um, uh, so in various countries which have imposed much more moderate lockdowns, particularly Sweden, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of excess deaths. That is to say, deaths aren't any higher for the um, first week of April, uh, the second week of April in those countries than they would be in a normal year. Um, so uh, even though um, the British authorities believe that the uh, suppression measures that have been introduced um, have uh, uh, flattened the peak of infection, um, uh, there doesn't seem to be much evidence that um, less severe measures uh, would have uh, would have would have um, uh, created uh, a greater number of excess deaths. Not based on this particular analysis, but it is you know we have incomplete information and it's early days. There was a model in India which is now undergoing the largest lockdown in human history, 1.3 billion people. Um, there was an early model that said that if you do not impose social distancing measures and introduce a lockdown, uh, up to 500 million people could be infected and uh, the, the mortality rate would be 1-5% to off the infected. Um, and that prompted the Prime Minister to announce a lockdown on four hours' notice. So the effectiveness of social distancing... Um, we will only learn of it in 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 the months to come, but th there is um, you know scientists have rung the alarm and there is very prompt reaction in places such as India and in Britain. Britain came late to it, uh, but there are also countries that are defying it, as Toby mentioned. Um, the full picture will only emerge after we come out of this. I think. 
What is a government to do, though, in fairness, if you're either the, the Modi government in India or the Johnson government in, in, uh, in the UK, when you are presented with statistical analysis, which uh, involves the scale of potential fatality, do you really have any other option but to uh, pursue a lockdown? One of my criticisms, I think, of the way in which the UK government has um, acted is that um, they uh, are only listening to, seemingly, um, one team of modellers, which is the Imperial College team led by Professor Neil Ferguson. Um, and uh, they're not listening to other sources of advice, um, who come up with very different models. So there's the unit at Oxford University, um, which uh, uh, has long is a long-standing rival of Professor Ferguson's unit at Imperial College, um, and there's a lot of history there between um, uh, uh, Professor uh, Gupta, the leader of the team at Oxford, and Professor Ferguson. Um, but uh, the the Oxford uh, model. Um, uh, showed um, uh, a much higher uh, rate, a, a, a much higher number of um, British people infected than the imperial model, and of course that's a that's a critical thing to understand. Um, if it's the case that, say, fifty uh, percent of the UK population has already had the virus, um, then obviously there's much uh, a much less much less need to impose extreme social distancing um, because the number of people you're trying to protect from getting it is far fewer. Um, uh, so, uh, And the, um, uh, the UK authorities seem to be constantly increasing their estimate of the percentage of the UK population which has been infected. Uh, so initially it was very small. Um, in the Imperial College model, the assumption was, um, uh, I think, uh, something like 1% or 2%. Um, at yesterday's, we're speaking today on Good Friday, but at yesterday's um, uh, uh, press conference, um, uh, Chris Whitty was asked how many people uh, he thought had been infected. And he said it, 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 most of the early Porton Down preliminary findings, because Porton Down is now doing some uh, research trying to trying to determine what percentage of the population in the UK has been infected, uh, was uh, in single figures, so 10 per, uh, less than 10%. But he said in some cases it was higher than single figures. And he also let, let slip, seemingly was a slip, that he thought globally um, it looked as though 30% of the world's population had been infected. Now we won't know for sure until we've done some, you know, uh, representative uh, testing and we've got reliable tests. Um, uh, but uh, my suspicion is uh, that it's going to be closer to the Oxford uh, model than Imperial College's model. And uh, it seems it would be sensible if uh, the if if the government um, uh, didn't just uh, weren't just advised by one team of modellers, uh, but took soundings from a variety of teams. I mean, it's been quite difficult to um, challenge Professor Ferguson's model. He is understandably quite defensive about it, and there is this tendency on his part and on the part of other people in authority to say that any challenging of the Imperial College model is dangerous. Um, because it may um, uh, it may mean the public uh, won't um, uh, observe the social distancing measures that have been put in place, um, but I think that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, not a very grown up attitude. I think we need to have um, a properly informed scientific discussion between different groups of experts who disagree about things like. Uh, the percentage of the UK population that's been infected and that the government's decision making should be informed by um, uh, that debate and not just the um, dogmatic assertions of one particular group of modellers. Of course, one of the problems is that the modelling at the moment, none of it is based on on accurate statistics because we, we do simply don't have the level of testing. 
the various antibody tests that, that have been trialled in the UK so far haven't, haven't worked sufficiently well to be rolled out. So we, we could have a, a battle of, of the statisticians and a battle of the modellers for the next two or three months without anything really being uh, concluded or anything for a government to, to act upon with any certainty. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, a, a lockdown for another two or three months not only economically catastrophic, but it begins to create all sorts of health problems, including mental health problems, uh, which uh, could be as, as bad or, or worse uh, as, as anything coronavirus is doing to the population. But as, as the numbers rise, I just may I just add that uh, as the number of dead rise, it's important to remember that there is a, there is a fallacy of selection here, because uh, the denominator here uh, is not confirmed cases. You know, but the actual total number of infections, if you take that into account, the actual number of deaths is very, very small. And in a country such as India, which is home to 1.3 billion people, the lockdown has actually led to incredible suffering. There's tremendous human misery that there are more than 80 people who've died of starvation, of things like not being able to go back home, of tiredness, of exhaustion, of dehydration as a result of a lockdown that was announced on four hours notice. So it's very important to remember uh, the people who are suffering as a result of this lockdown. And most of us will be all right, but the, the, the poorest will be hurt the worst as a result. Yeah, the, 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 um, the other bit of data, the other data point that we desperately need to get a better understanding of. Um, so the first one is the percentage of the British population that's been infected. The second is the infection fatality rate. We know the case fatality rate. To get the case fatality rate, um, you just divide the number of people who've tested positive by the number of people that have died uh, with coronavirus, although there is some debate about whether there's a distinction between dying with coronavirus and dying of coronavirus. And it may be that the case fatality rate has been exaggerated because people uh, who've died with coronavirus uh, haven't died of coronavirus. Dr. John Lee wrote a good piece about that for The Spectator. Um, but uh, the the um, critical data point we need to understand is not the case fatality rate, but the infection fatality rate. That is, what percentage of people who are infected with the virus die? And that is obviously going to be much lower than the case fatality rate because... Um, the number of people who've tested positive uh, doesn't reflect the number of people in the population who've actually been infected because, you know, we haven't done that testing yet. We don't know. But uh, in those countries where they've done much more extensive testing than the UK um, and have built up a picture of the in uh, of, of the a more accurate idea of what the infection fatality rate is, it, it, it's much lower uh, than was assumed in the Imperial College model. So in Iceland, for instance, which has done more per capita testing than anywhere else, um, the case fatality rate is about 0.3%, um, uh, whereas the Imperial College model assumed that the case fatality rate would be 0.9% uh, in the UK. Um, uh, but it looks like the infection fatality rate in Iceland is going to be lower than the case fatality rate, and the infection fatality rate globally is likely to be lower than that too. I, I, I predict it will end up being around 0.2%, which is about twice the infection fatality rate of seasonal flu. Um, uh, but it's important that we should understand not just the percentage of the British population that's been infected, but what the infection fatality rate is in order to get an act in order to be able to accurately predict what the demand for critical hospital care might be if we are to relax some of the more extreme social distancing measures. I don't have much expertise on the subject. I tend to think that to the maximum extent possible, the avoidance of debt should be the pressing priority of all governments. And I think that is what they're being led by. And the fear of bodies piling up is prompting governments to take very severe measures against uh, against people crowding, um, especially in India. The, the, one, the word that comes to mind when you think of India is multitudes. India is crowds. And the streets of India are completely deserted. People are indoors. Uh, there is, as I've mentioned already, tremendous unspeakable 
indescribable suffering uh, among the poorest people of India who have been completely left out of any economic analysis. Um, and there needs to be very urgent action to feed them, to give them care. Uh, but it is what this has really done, I think, in, in a country such as India is exposed the failures of uh, successive governments to create capacities to deal with, uh, to, to provide basic health care. And I think once this is behind us, again, I repeat, I don't have expertise and I don't want to talk about things I don't have expertise about. But um, once this is behind us, I think this should prompt us to really consider our priorities, in, especially in India, um, and attend to the most... We talk about becoming the next superpower in India. That has been one of the obsessions of the past decade. And I think our priority should be able to feed people and to be able to supply them health care, to, to supply them housing, uh, to create sanitary conditions in the cities and the villages of India. And this pandemic has really exposed uh, everything. All the failures of India are on vivid display for the world to see. And this is quite embarrassing and this is very saddening for me as an Indian to witness. Toby, you've argued in The Critic that the, the billions that are now being spent on the British government's current policy, uh, you know, a fraction of that could have been spent on the NHS earlier uh, with better results. Is that a fair summary of, of your position? Well, that was one argument I made in my article in The Critic. Um, uh, I, I argued that um, essentially the uh, cure uh, was looking like it's worse than the disease and made a number of arguments. Um, the most controversial was um, uh, trying to assess the value of the additional years of life that are likely to be saved by the extreme social distancing measures that have been introduced um, and to try and come up with a kind of total figure in the billions um, uh, to uh, which would which would be the value of those years of life saved and compare them with the uh, economic cost of the lockdown and um, uh, Sam Bowman and I um, got into uh, a dispute. I came up with one figure, he disputed that. I then replied to his critique and people can go to the critics' website and read those exchanges. That was one argument. Um, another argument uh, is that um, if we're going to spend the kind of money that the lockdown is going to cost us because we are prioritising saving lives, well, we could actually spend a fraction of that money on increasing the NHS's budget and probably save more years of life than we're saving by entering into the lockdown. That's the argument you mentioned uh, just now. There's a third argument, and probably the best argument, I think, is that um, uh, economic downturns do cause um, loss of life. Uh, that's controversial. But um, there is some evidence that um, during the global um, economic recession of 2007 to 9, um, suicide rates increased quite significantly in the United States and in Europe. Uh, and uh, it's likely that if there's an economic contraction in the UK as a consequence of the lockdown, which there will be, um, that that could cause a rise in suicide. Um, there'll also be a rise in violent crime, poverty, homelessness, a general decline in public health as well as mental health. Um, and you can, um, uh, so, so I think you can make an argument. Um, uh, in fact, a, a professor of risk management at Bristol University has made this argument. He's argued that if the, uh, if the um, uh, impact of the lockdown is um, a shrinking of GDP per head of at least 6.4% over the next two years, that that will lead to a greater loss of life than the lives we are hoping to save as a consequence of the lockdown. And that's just measuring the impact of the lockdown in terms of loss of life. 
Um, and it looks as though it will be greater uh, than 6.4%. The latest OECD estimate is that the UK economy will shrink by 25% over the next two years if the lockdown is prolonged. And I think the impact, the economic impact of the lockdown, uh, we're only just beginning to grasp, and it's much more severe than we initially anticipated. Uh, the unemployment rate in the US is much higher, I think, than people had anticipated. The number of people claiming universal credit now in the UK is higher than anticipated. The cost of the bailout that Rishi Sunak has announced is going to be higher than anticipated. Um, so uh, it looks as though just the impact of the lockdown, if it's prolonged uh, in terms of lives lost, uh, is going to be greater than the number of lives saved as a result of imposing the lockdown, at which point it begins to not make much sense to prolong it any further. And there's a final argument, Graham, which is one argument for prolonging the lockdown is that if we can prolong it for long enough, we will eventually have a vaccine. That was the assumption uh, in the Imperial College paper published on March 16th, which was uh, uh, so pivotal in changing the government's mind and moving from a mitigation to a suppression strategy. Um, the assumption in that paper is that we would have a vaccine. Uh, we will have a vaccine within 18 months and that the lockdown should essentially be kept in place. There may be an opportunity to um, ease it off, only to then reapply it in a kind of uh, uh, intermittent way. Um, uh, but nonetheless, the assumption in that paper is that there'll be a vaccine in 18 months and therefore we should prolong with prolong the lockdown to all intents and purposes for 18 months. Well, that'll be absolutely economically catastrophic. Uh, but in addition, I think it's very optimistic to think that there will be a vaccine in 18 months. We still don't have a vaccine uh, for swine flu. Um, and uh, 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 sometimes it takes a very long time uh, to develop vaccines. And um, the coronavirus may mutate into different strains. So we may develop a vaccine for one form of the current coronavirus of COVID-19 and uh, and then uh, uh, discover that we're now facing another uh, uh, different virus. Um, so uh, if, if, if we conclude that we're not going to um, come up with a vaccine within the next 18 months, it's going to take longer than that. And we just cannot afford to keep the lockdown in place in perpetuity. We're going to have to abandon it sooner rather than later. We're going to have to abandon it at some point before a vaccine emerges. And so why not abandon it sooner rather than later? Because there's no gain in keeping it in place any longer than we have to. Um, and uh, one of the assumptions, again, in the Imperial College model is that as soon as the extreme social distancing measures are relaxed, uh, then infections begin to climb again. So if, and that's the reason you have to keep it in place for 18 months. It's not just a case of keeping it in place while you flatten the peak of infection infection and then you can uh, then you can uh, start to relax um, it has to be kept in place until the vaccine becomes available but if 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 we're not going to keep it in place until a vaccine becomes available um uh, uh, we're not going to gain anything in terms of lives saved we're just putting off that loss of life um uh, while we keep the lockdown in place so why not end the lockdown sooner rather than later toby are you May I ask you, will you accept that if the lockdown is removed, uh, the death toll will rise? You've packed a lot into that, and I, I, I pay close attention to that. You, you accept that if we remove the lockdown, if we relax the lockdown, or had the lockdown never happened, the death toll will be significantly it higher? It depends, I think, how much you're packing into that word significantly. I think the um, death toll uh, would probably rise... Um, if we began to ease off on some of the lockdown measures. I think we can... Um, I'm not suggesting that we abandon social distancing altogether. Um, I think uh, uh, we could still uh, insist on the um, quarantining of the elderly and the vulnerable. Um, we could still encourage people who don't have to travel to work to work from home. Uh, we could encourage people who do have to travel to work to wear masks, uh, but we could uh, effectively end the lockdown and begin to restart the economy. And that might result in an uptick in the number of deaths. The critical question is, the $6 million question is, would it result in the NHS becoming overwhelmed? 
And to calculate that, you need to know what percentage of the population has already been infected and what the infection fatality rate is. Um, but uh, my, I think that there is there is mounting evidence that the NHS would be able to cope with the likely increase in demand if you began to relax some of the social distancing measures but kept others in place, as I've just described. Um, I think that one of the assumptions that's probably wrong in the Imperial College model is the surge capacity of the NHS. One of the reasons the advice of Professor Ferguson and his team changed in the March 16th paper is that um, they they said that they had overestimated the emergency surge capacity of the NHS as well as underestimating the likely demand for critical hospital care. Um, now I think they overestimated the likely demand for critical hospital care absence suppression but I also think that they underestimated the emergency surge capacity of the NHS. If you look at the speed with which the Nightingale Hospital, for instance, has been put up, uh, which has the capacity to treat 4,000 patients and probably many more, um, I think that the NHS uh, in all likelihood could cope with the uh, smallish uptick in demand for critical care if some of the social, some of the more extreme social distancing measures were relaxed. Right. You, you said there would be an uptick in the number of dead if, if social distancing were relaxed, but you dispute the use of the word significant. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I mean it, it, the, the critical calculation, I think, uh, is would, 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 the, would the loss of life resulting from uh, the relaxing of some social distancing measures be greater than uh, the lives you would effectively save by restarting the economy? Right. If we didn't restart the economy, you are proposing that there will be, you are arguing that there will be a significant loss of life. There will be more deaths if we continue to keep the lockdown in place. Uh, Or there will be great economic misery. Yes. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm to an extent sympathetic because I come from a generation that, you know, I began university a few years after 9-11 and the war on terror. Uh, was taking place at the time I came, when when we entered the job market, uh, the economic depression began, and once we got settled in the jobs, uh, you know, once the economic recession reversed, uh, Donald Trump became president, and just as Donald Trump's term comes to the end, we have a global pandemic. So, you know, two decades of misery, uh, and I sympathise with that. And what Toby's argument is that. You know, there is a generation of people whose lives could be improved by creating a better economy. I, my, my feeling about this is, having read Toby's article, is that I don't think the loss of life is a cost worth paying because the deaths of these people are irreversible. Once people die, uh, because, of, uh, social, because of relaxation of social distancing, those deaths will be irreversible. And this is a generation of people, the elderly, who've actually built the world we in- inhabit right now. You know, they are owed a degree of respect and compassion and affection and dedication. And their debts will be irreversible. And the misery Toby speaks of, uh, if social distancing were relaxed and the economy were restarted, if they weren't, uh, if the economy wasn't restarted, the misery Toby predicts will overtake us. That can, I think, be mitigated. I think we underestimate human ingenuity. And I think there are... Many economists, uh, I've certainly read pieces by Indian economists who've argued about the ways to kickstart the Indian economy after this comes out. And remember, India is an enormous country. Its challenges are multitudinous. Um, And I think we shouldn't ever gamble. This is my position, of course. I speak only for myself. Um, It's, 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 I wouldn't want to gamble with the lives of people. Um, Every death is... uh, is unimaginably sad for people, and if can, if it can be prevented, um, it should be. That is my position. Um, and I've I, I I have elderly parents, and I have elderly people who are very dear to me. And the idea that I could keep my job or have a prosperous life in the coming years at the expense of their lives uh, seems perverse to me. Uh, but I'm sympathetic to the argument Toby makes because I think he's not coming from an, from a place of uh, he he's he's not evil as he's being described. I think he's coming from a place um, 
that he wants to help a generation of people, but I think that's not the cost worth paying because death is irreversible. And I think we can mit mitigate the pain that people predict will be suffered by uh, a vast amount uh, of human beings if the lockdown isn't lifted. I'd um, uh, quibble with your use of the word gamble there, Kapil. Um, yeah. I think that... Um... I say the word gamble, Toby, because all of these are projections and absolutely nothing is yeah. certain except that if, you in, if you're in... If, if, you're struck down by COVID and you're elderly and you have pre-existing conditions, uh, there is a greater likelihood of dying than the projections being made by economists that say that if the lockdown continues, there will be there will be catastrophe, unmitigatable catastrophe. I don't feel that catastrophe is unmitigatable. Well, I think I think the the it, 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 when I said I quibble with your use of the word gamble, I was just wanting to make the point that um, you're gambling either way. Um, yes, you'd be gambling with the lives of elderly and vulnerable people if you relax some of the social distancing measures, but you're gambling with other people's lives if you keep those social distancing measures in place. Uh, and if the government's objective is to minimise loss of life, either course is a gamble. And it's not clear that the precautionary principle dictates one course, the present course, rather than another. Um, I think the I think the I mean, I, I think you do raise a really good point, um, which is that I think it's really it's a choice between um, more tangible, visible deaths on the one hand. You know, we can imagine we can picture uh, the people who would suffer and uh, possibly die if we were to relax the social distancing measures. It's much mm. harder to picture the impact, uh, the uh, catastrophic impact of a prolonged economic depression. Um, uh, uh, it's sort of a way, it, you're sort of comparing visible deaths with invisible deaths. Um, uh, imaginable, tangible deaths with deaths which are harder to imagine. They're more uh, uh, statistical deaths, like the likely impact on a generation, as you say. Um, but um, that doesn't mean they're less real. Uh, and it may be that um, uh, the way in which we think about these questions morally is slightly distorted by whether we have elderly parents, whether we know uh, elderly people who we think or other people who are at risk, um, when a more clear-headed um, uh, moral calculation um, uh, might lead us to just kind of, in a, in a, in a, in a more forensic way, um, try and measure the years of life likely to be lost if we relax the social distancing measures compared to the years of life likely to be lost uh, if we keep them in place. I think finally, um, you make a good point about um, the fact that the elderly and the vulnerable, those with underlying health conditions, are those most at risk if we were to relax the social distancing measures. And even though um, uh, on the one hand, if you're being a kind of uh, cold-hearted health economist, you value those lives less highly than the lives of young, healthy people or younger, healthy people, because they have less years to live and the years they have left aren't going to be as good as um, uh, the years that people without underlying health conditions have. But I think from a moral point of view, we do feel a greater obligation to protect the elderly and the vulnerable than we do healthy younger people. Uh, so that makes the moral calculation, I think, quite difficult to do too. I, I sympathise with your concern for what you say as the invisible debt who will, who, who will not be taken into account. I feel that the invisible debts can be prevented. The, the, the suffering of the people to come can be mitigated. But if the deaths actually occur as a result of relaxation of social distancing or any other measures uh, that are proven to actually reduce mortality, those deaths are reversible. I, I, I think to the to the and this is the, the disagreement you and I have is largely philosophical. To me, I think the inability of healthy people like you and me, um, younger people, to care for the elderly, to, to do everything possible to prevent their death, bespeaks a decline, a great civilizational decline. I think, what is the point of coming to this point in civilization, having this advancement, if we can't even protect the lives, knowing 
doing things that we know will protect their lives. If we don't do that, I think there there is a great decline, and that that's that's a cause for deep sorrow. Um, you speak about the deaths that will not be visible, and I, I I applaud your concern for those people. I just feel that our energies should be thrown into finding ways to mitigate that suffering, uh, rather than to believe that that suffering will take place. I think we shouldn't underestimate our own ingenuity, and we should do everything possible to mitigate the suffering to come. If we know that we can actually prevent the deaths that will happen if we relax the social distancing measure or any of the draconian lockdowns that we're witnessing. Um, I certainly think it's a very difficult choice for uh, politicians to make uh, because if they if they were to say, look, a far larger number of invisible deaths will occur than visible deaths um, if we prolong the lockdown and therefore we're going to ease back on some of these social distancing measures and then we see an uptick invisible deaths uh, it's going to be hard for politicians to say oh yes what we did did cause this increase in deaths but we've prevented all these mm. other people from dying that's that's kind of it's it'll be hard to persuade the electorate that that was the right decision because they will inevitably um, uh, value and attach more importance to those people that have died as a result of relaxing the social distancing measures than the lives the more notional lives that you've saved as a result of easing off on some of those social distancing measures. But just to, just to make one point, uh, Gabble, th this wouldn't be a kind of new and kind of brutalist direction for Western civilization to take. Um, uh, Western governments um, uh, make these calculations when deciding how to allocate resources in their public health systems all the time. You know, you, you place a value on the years of life that you think are going to be saved by introducing a new um, medical therapy, introducing a new medical device. Uh, so governments have been making these cold-hearted, brutal calculations which involve valuing people's lives. And the way they generally do that is to estimate how many years of good life they've got left. Um, so it wouldn't be, you know, even Labour governments um, uh, make these kind of um, uh uh, decisions based on health economics. So it wouldn't be a new direction. Uh, unfortunately, we've been making these kind of calculations for decades. Well, I'm afraid um, I've got to make a calculation of how long we've got left for this podcast. And uh, our time is up, gentlemen. Uh, I've been talking to Capo Comoretti and to Toby Young. Thank you very both for your insights in a debate which has got much time to run. Thank you, Shiva. Thanks. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.